As is the case with all areas of oncology research, neuro-oncology, and specifically the management of patients with glioblastoma, is evolving rapidly, as was evident by Dr. Batchelor's comments. I met with Dr. David Schiff, and to better understand how these changes are affecting patient care, I asked him to present to me patients from his practice who typify where we are today. Dr. Schiff began by presenting a patient with a prior history of chronic lymphocytic leukemia and renal cell cancer with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. He was a 62-year-old man who I met after his surgery. His cancer care had been elsewhere for his care for his CLL and renal cell carcinoma. He had presented, I think, with headaches, symptoms of mass effect, had a large right temporal lobe, cystic mass. The surgeons did a nice resection. It proved to be a glioblastoma. And I saw him about eight or nine days after his surgery, at the time he came for suture removal, to go over his pathology and to make a plan. What were your thoughts about him when you first saw him? Well, his performance status was good. He had no neurologic deficits. His renal cell carcinoma, he had had a nephrectomy, but he had no evidence of disease, so potentially cured. Had a baseline creatinine of about 1.7, but that didn't look like it was going to interfere with anything we were going to do. And his CLL was basically a non-issue as well. We opted for standard therapy with fractionated radiotherapy and temozolomide. Could you talk a little bit about him, what type of work he did, his life situation? Yeah, he, I think, had children from a first marriage and was and still is engaged to be married to a very supportive companion. I think he had done a lot of things. I think he had worked in the shipbuilding business. I know he had run a marathon or two. He'd worked for radio stations and been a DJ for dances. And I think he was working at a Home Depot. Now, was he out on the web getting information, asking a lot of questions, or more just sort of turning to you saying, what should I do? No, he's more the latter sort of patient, very trusting, intelligent, and his partner is a healthcare professional, so they certainly asked reasonable questions, but they weren't bringing me novel treatments off the internet. I'm curious what you say to patients in this situation who want information about sort of what to expect from the future in terms of best case versus worst case scenario. The first rule that I think all oncologists know is that we take our cues from the patients. I don't remember specifically in his case. We certainly make clear that these are very difficult, often refractory tumors that do tend to come back. When patients ask, we tell them median survival, and we try to explain what median means, and we tell them that the median survival is on the order of 14 or 15 months. Fortunately, the long-term follow-up data on the radiation-temozolomide combination indicates that we are seeing a meaningful percentage of relatively long-term survivors, 12 or 13 percent survival at four years out, which obviously isn't great. The glass is more than half empty, but it's better than what we had before temozolomide. Well, and also when you say that, I mean, you're talking about people who are free of progression or I don't know if there is longer follow-up in terms of five or ten years also. There's not in terms of radiation temozolomide, but I think most of those patients who live that long are still free of progression. Once you progress with a glioblastoma, the median survival is well under a year still. So what happened with this man at that point? 
he opted for radiation temozolomide, and he did well for a number of months. I think it was about a year. You might have that information in front of you. Yeah, about 11 months. Yeah, 11 months. And at that point, he had asymptomatic radiographic recurrence. He had a local recurrence, a nodular bulky recurrence, and his operative site in the right temporal lobe. He also had a small amount of new definite contrast enhancement in his septum pellucida. But no symptoms or defects? He had no symptoms from either of those. So what were the options that you were thinking through at that point? Well, it was clear that he needed a change in chemotherapy regimen. I think the first question, though, given that he had a bulky recurrence that looked to me to be surgically accessible, the stuff in his right temporal lobe, the first question was, should we start out with a debulking? And this wasn't a cut-and-dried issue completely because he did also have enhancement deep in the brain in a region that no surgeon would attempt to operate on, so that in this case we knew that any resection would be subtotal. However, I was tempted because the surgically accessible disease was bulky. The surgically inaccessible disease was still pretty small. And so I presented the case to the surgeon who had done the initial operation, and he said, indeed, I can debulk the right temporal lobe disease again. And he went ahead and he did that. The patient tolerated the second surgery quite well and then came back to us. It's interesting. You think about doing neurosurgery, of course, it sounds very intimidating, but you think about the other kinds of procedures that cancer patients have, removal of lesions in the liver, metastatic lesions, for example, or abdominal procedures, thoracic procedures. Overall, how do you see patients, particularly somebody like this who's in good condition, tolerating these kinds of procedures? How long are they in the hospital? Yeah, it's really quite remarkable, and things have improved even during my career. Typically, and this may be a little bit surprising, but often these reoperations are easier than the first operation because there's already a bone flap. And I think he was in the hospital for about three days Hmm. following the second surgery. How long was it before he was kind of, quote, back to normal? I think he was pretty functional by the time he came back to see me seven to ten days after the second surgery. What was his state of mind and his spouse's or fiancé's state of mind? Yeah, he's a loquacious and very positive, upbeat person with a lot of faith, and he was ready to do whatever we thought we should do. So what were you thinking at that point? Well, at that time, and this was two or three years ago, there was a clinical trial for patients at first recurrence of glioblastoma. So he was actually randomized in a study that is still looking at a device that attempts to control tumor growth with very low-intensity electrical fields, Hmm. a device that's called the Novacure device that basically is a large battery attached to electrode pads that are placed on the patient's shaved scalp. But he was randomized to the control arm, which meant standard of care chemotherapy, which at that time was BCNU. I've got to backtrack a little bit about Mm -hmm. this electrode thing. That sounds pretty different. Is that still being looked at? The study is ongoing, and I think it's a phase three international study. Wow. And I believe the target number of patients is about 220. I think they've enrolled over 200 at this point. So the study is winding down in terms of patient accrual. That's interesting. So is it a continuous electrode thing? or It is. Wow. It is. Patients are allowed to take it off for a couple of hours a day to do things like bathing, but 
the patients wear it the rest of the day they wear it when they sleep. So and what's the thinking there? I think this device stemmed from the observation that very low-intensity electrical fields disrupt the mitotic process. Hmm. When cells try to actually break apart during mitosis, cell death occurs. And so people took that observation in the laboratory and piloted a device that in theory could achieve the same thing. And there was a paper published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science a couple of years ago summarizing the initial pilot results that were quite promising. Really? That's so yeah. interesting. It's so great to see a little bit of innovation. Has it just been looked at in glioma or other you know, solid tumors? Or I believe there's been a little bit of work in melanoma, particularly cutaneous or subcutaneous nodules. So that's interesting. I'm guessing he was probably disappointed he didn't get randomized to the electrode arm. I think he was a little disappointed, but he's the sort of person who takes things as they come. And he actually did extraordinarily well on BCNU for several months, the better part of a year. He had some trouble with his blood counts, and we had to lower the dose of BCNU several times. But he did well for longer than I probably would have predicted. And then what happened? Then again, he progressed radiographically, and it became time to choose another treatment. What were you thinking at that point? Still asymptomatic? Still asymptomatic, that's right. When was this? This is last year, I guess. Yeah, it was about a year ago or maybe a little over a year ago. So what were you thinking at that point? Well, at that point, the preliminary results of the large phase two trial of bevacizumab and irinotecan had been presented, and we had been part of that trial, so I'd cared for a number of the patients on that trial with that combination of drugs. And the independently radiologically confirmed partial response rates with bevacizumab with or without irinotecan were on the order of 30 to 40 percent. So that's certainly higher than anything else we had available at that time. And fortunately, we were able to get bevacizumab with irinotecan for this patient in an off-protocol setting. And what happened? He tolerated it very well. We were able to taper his dexamethasone almost completely off. I think he has some adrenal insufficiency still, so he's on about a milligram of dexamethasone a day. He's tolerated it quite well, and it has controlled his recurrent disease. His tumor shrank with the initial treatments. There was less contrast enhancement, and he has maintained that improvement over the last six or seven, six-week cycles of therapy. And any side effects or issues with either the bevacizumab or renitecan? He had a transient problem or issue with hypertension for which we needed to adjust his antihypertensive medication. I think progressively he has become more fatigued and has had intermittent diarrhea following the infusions, which I attribute to the irinotecan since those are well-recognized side effects. So with his last infusion, we decided to try holding the irinotecan to see how he did, just to try to keep his strength up. Does he notice a difference when the lower dose of the steroids? I think he had had some issues with proximal muscle weakness, steroid myopathy, and I think those have somewhat improved since we were able to take his steroids down. I've been hearing a lot about the spectrum of problems that these patients run into with steroids. Can you comment on that? Well, particularly in the recurrent setting, many patients, for example, in the bevacizumab phase 2 trial, at least 50% of patients were on steroids when they went on to the study. 
and that was a trial for patients at first or second recurrence. So certainly in the recurrent disease setting, most patients require corticosteroids. And problems with diabetes, steroid myopathy are almost ubiquitous, as well as easy bruising, occasional problems with osteopenia and fractures, cataracts, the usual array of complications that you would see with corticosteroids. We get into the issue of bevacizumab and a lot of different education programs or different tumor types. And along the way, you hear things like, for example, in ovarian cancer about the anti-aesthetic effect. And I've heard some things in terms of glioblastomas, in terms of edema and bevacizumab, and that maybe there's an additional benefit beyond the anti-tumor effect. Any thoughts of that? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that VEGF or VEGF was originally called vascular permeability factor and certainly is associated with ascites and seems to be the principal mediator of vasogenic edema in the brain associated with glioblastomas. I don't think there's any question that bevacizumab has a, if you will, supersteroid blood-brain barrier tightening type effect. And one of the big questions in the field that we're still trying to sort out is how much of bevacizumab's benefit is due to a true anti-tumor, anti-angiogenic effect as opposed to a vasogenic edema blood-brain barrier effect. I think both almost certainly play a role, but the relative contribution of each still remains uncertain. Could you sort of capsulize the clinical research data that we have right now in terms of malignant glioma and bevacizumab, and particularly the issue of trying to dissect out how much the irinotecan is adding? Yeah, that's a tough question because we don't really have the answers yet. The Genentech phase two trial that I mentioned, which had, I think, 167 patients, was designed as a randomized phase two trial so that patients were randomized either to bevacizumab alone or bevacizumab plus irinotecan. The group that got the combination therapy had a slightly higher response rate, radiographic response rate, although this didn't translate into improved survival. And this was not a big difference between the response rates in the two arms, and the study wasn't designed to compare the two arms statistically since it was a phase two, not a phase three. Other studies have shown relatively similar response rates with single-agent bevacizumab. Finally, both in the Genentech trial and in a recently published trial from the neuro-oncology branch at the NIH, it's clear that if patients fail single-agent bevacizumab, you're not going to get radiographic responses by adding in irinotecan. Additionally, single-agent irinotecan has about a 5% response rate in recurrent glioblastomas, even though it and its active metabolite, SN38, cross the blood-brain barrier pretty well. So I think it's still an open question how much the irinotecan is adding We know from other cancers that bevacizumab seems to work best in conjunction with cytotoxic chemotherapy. I think we can't answer that one way or the other in the brain yet. I had the pleasure of interviewing Rakesh Jain, actually for our colon cancer series, and of course he and a lot of other people have been trying to figure out how bevacizumab works. 
I guess, I don't know, it seems like maybe in the terms of the biology of these tumors that you do see single agent responses like ovary or renal, people talk about more bloody tumors or tumors that are related to vasculature. Where do you think glioblastoma fits in? Glioblastoma, at least, is a very, very vascular tumor with endothelial proliferation being a core pathologic finding. VEGF levels typically are very high. So I think these certainly are hypoxic tumors that induce a great deal of angiogenesis. So it would certainly make sense that glioblastoma is more towards the renal cell carcinoma end of the spectrum than maybe non-small cell lung cancer or breast cancer, although I don't consider myself as having any expertise in the biology of those latter two tumors. I guess an early concern was the question of bleeding and bevacizumab and, you know, both glioblastoma and, for that matter, brain mets. And in terms of brain mets, I'm starting to see, you know, people utilizing bevacizumab and people have already been treated. What do we know about bleeding with both glioblastoma as well as brain mets and bev? Right. And just to further complicate it, it's particularly an issue in glioblastoma because the incidence of venous thromboembolism is so high and, and we you know, need to get a lot of our patients on anticoagulation, which certainly ups the ante. In early clinical experience with bevacizumab, there were hemorrhages reported in patients with brain metastases. These were not patients deliberately treated with brain metastases. I think these had been occult brain metastases. So people were aware that there should be a concern about intracranial bleeding, treating brain tumors with bevacizumab. And I think this was one of the reasons that folks were very slow to try bevacizumab. And I think, as is well known at this point, it was really a private practice oncologist who tried it in a sort of last resort setting in a patient, saw some exciting results, and then treated another 20 patients or so, one of whom did have an intracranial hemorrhage, presented those results to an international neuro-oncology meeting that kind of launched the formal investigation of bevacizumab in glioblastomas. Fortunately, with larger numbers of patients treated to date, we have not seen a high incidence of intracranial hemorrhage with bevacizumab in glioblastoma. In the Genentech trial, I think there were three patients out of 167 with serious adverse events related to intracranial hemorrhage. So a rate of about 2%, which for a tumor that sometimes spontaneously bleeds, did not appear to be unacceptable. What about the issue of fatigue and bevacizumab? Now, you said this man had fatigue, Mm -hmm. but of course he's on a renotecan, so it's kind of hard to dissect it out. Any thoughts about just the issue of fatigue and bevacizumab? I would say that for most patients, in my experience, it has not been a big issue. We have a number of patients who continue to work on bevacizumab. I recognize that it's reported as a potential side effect, as a potential adverse event, And certainly brain tumor patients are predisposed to fatigue because of their tumor, because of prior cranial irradiation. But I would say that has not been a big problem. I'm curious about what the major clinical trials are out there right now looking at glioblastoma. And for example, if this man had presented today, what type of trials would he be eligible for, both when he presented initially as well as when he had recurrent disease? Right. Well, I think 
the recognition that angiogenesis inhibition has some sort of activity, biological activity in recurrent glioblastomas, has really pushed the whole field of neuro-oncology in a new direction in the last two to three years. There are an ever-growing number of agents targeting either VEGF, such as VEGF-TRAP, as well as Bevacizumab, or targeting the VEGF receptor, whether it's Sidirinib, CT322, drugs like sunitinib and serafinib that hit the receptor, and others. So I think that's one area. There are small molecule inhibitors of a number of other interesting pathways, small molecule inhibitors and antibody inhibitors targeting the scatter factor CMET pathway, the IGF receptor pathway. There's still some interest in targeting the EGF pathway, although preliminary studies thus far have not been overwhelmingly positive. There's interest in targeting the PI3 kinase pathway as well and the mTOR pathway. So a lot of exciting potential targets in glioblastoma right now, both in newly diagnosed and particularly recurrent disease. What do we know about sidirinib in glioblastoma? Well, the initial reports from Tracy, ba- Tracy Batchelor and colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital suggested a radiographic response rate of about 50% of partial response rate, often associated with a steroid-sparing effect. So patients, just as with bevacizumab, could be tapered down on their corticosteroids. And so this is now going to be tested in a phase 3 trial for recurrent glioblastoma. Have you treated any patients with it? I have not. It's a VEGF TKI, correct? Correct. It's a receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. What about BEV in the upfront setting with radiation and temozolomide? Right. So there are two large randomized phase three trials planned that are going to randomize newly diagnosed patients to radiation and temidar plus or minus bevacizumab. I believe both of them are going to be placebo-controlled. One of them is being done through the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group, or RTOG, and if it hasn't opened yet, is poised to open any day now. The other is going to be an international study sponsored by Genentech, and I have not seen the formal protocol design yet, and that's anticipated to open this spring. Do we have any safety data on the combination? The answer is yes. If you're talking about published safety data, There's a paper by Albert Lay and colleagues at UCLA published in the International Journal of Radiation Biology about a year ago describing their early experience. They now have more patients treated on that pilot study. Duke's Brain Tumor Center also has a pilot study as well, although I don't think those data have been presented. They certainly haven't been published. But there's emerging safety data on that combination in the upfront setting. And how is it scheduled? The bevacizumab is scheduled standard 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks, typically starting about halfway through radiation so that patients are at least five or six weeks out from their surgical procedure before they're exposed to the potential wound healing effects of bevacizumab. And how long has it continued? I believe in the RTOG study it's continued for a year. You know, of course, there's a bunch of adjuvant studies, sort of. I guess this is kind of adjuvant in a way. 
out there in solid tumors. There's colon, lung, breast, and others. And there's always this big debate about whether to continue the BEV, how long you continue it. I guess in this situation, since there's a pretty good single-agent response rate, it makes even more sense to continue it. Yes, and I think it'll be interesting to see when patients come to the end of their year on trial, how many of them try to, if they know what they're getting, of course, they're randomized to placebo, how many of them try to make sure they're on bevacizumab, maybe outside of the protocol setting. I do wonder on these trials how easy it will be truly to blind the physicians and patients. The side effect profile, hypertension is fairly common in bevacizumab-treated patients. Additionally, the physicians may well see telltale signs of bevacizumab effect on follow-up MR scans, and patients have every right to know what their MRIs show, and we often show patients their MRIs when they come back for follow-up. So I think that may be a bit of an issue. That also leads into the same question I ask on all these different tumor education programs, which is, is there a role for bevacizumab with radiation and temindar outside a protocol setting? Well, that's a complicated question, and we face this regularly in the clinic since patients and patients' families are reading about this wonder drug Avastin on the Internet. Bevacizumab clearly has some salutary effects as a steroid-sparing drug, which may translate into improved quality of life, although that remains to be proven. In a small number of patients, it has potentially devastating side effects. I've seen colonic perforations and wound dehiscence, and it's an extremely expensive drug. So I have treated a few patients in the off-protocol setting, newly diagnosed patients, with bevacizumab in addition to standard therapy. But I would not say that it should become standard of care. Actually, when you ask people on a lot of the other tumor types, they don't even think it should be used, period. Colon cancer, for example, is adjuvant therapy. But I don't know, in this situation, the prognosis is so dire, you can really understand people feeling a little bit challenged by it. Absolutely. I think what we haven't seen yet is an incredibly strong survival signal from bevacizumab. The response data were much better than anything we've seen with previous drugs. The six-month progression-free survival looked quite good compared to other historical agents. The overall survival in both arms of that study was about nine months, which is good but wasn't so good as to clearly indicate and answer all questions that we were clearly prolonging the overall survival of our recurrent disease patients. So I have to ask you about your oligo case, since I can't even remember what it is from med school, but you have this 67-year-old lady I'd like to hear about. Sure. So I started as a neuro-oncology fellow in 1992, and those were very bleak times for taking care of patients with glioblastomas because we really didn't get any new drugs for the first 10 years of my career treating glioblastomas. But one of the exciting stories that emerged in the late 80s and early 90s was that anaplastic oligodendrogliomas were often sensitive to chemotherapy. Initially, the sort of historical, typical alkylating agents like BCNU or PCV, procarbazine CCNU, vincristin, 
with the advent of temozolomide, people started to look at temozolomide in anaplastic oligos. It showed activity in the recurrent setting, and people got interested in looking at temozolomide as the initial therapy in this potentially chemosensitive tumor. Can you talk a little bit more about the epidemiology and you know, sort of oligo 101 in terms of what we know about it? Right. Well, the pathologist makes the diagnosis of oligodendroglioma when he or she sees a tumor with relatively round glial cells, often with a cytoplasmic clearing causing this fried egg appearance, typically with very thin, fine vasculature that the pathologist called chicken wire vasculature. Oligos and oligoastrocytomas, tumors that seem to have a mix of oligo component and astrocytic component, make up about half to two-thirds of all low-grade gliomas. The pure oligos can be seen as low-grade tumors, or if there's mitotic activity and more hypercellularity, they do exist in an anaplastic form as well. What's the natural history? If you took all patients with anaplastic oligos, the median survival is about five years. But we've learned to refine that a little bit in recent years. One of the big observations that stemmed from the early work showing that oligos, anaplastic oligos, were chemosensitive had to do with an attempt to correlate molecular cytogenetic abnormalities in oligos with chemosensitivity. And this was work published by Greg Cairncross and David Lewis's group in 1998. They knew that about two-thirds of anaplastic oligos had deletions of chromosomes 1P and 19Q. And when they correlated that with response to the standard chemotherapy at that time, which was PCV, they found that every tumor with a 1P deletion responded favorably to chemotherapy, and basically none of the tumors that lacked the 1P deletion responded favorably for any meaningful duration to chemotherapy. This has been borne out, and we now know that anaplastic oligos with the 1P19Q deletions have a median survival of on the order of seven or seven and a half years. Those lacking the deletion, in other words, those who are intact for chromosomes 1P and 19Q, have a median survival of less than three years. So that It's become axiomatic when you talk about an anaplastic oligo to include its molecular cytogenetic profile. So now how did this woman present? This woman presented with headaches and contralateral weakness. This was a frontal lobe tumor. I didn't see her preoperatively. She came to me post-op having had a nice resection of this frontal parasagittal tumor At what point did you see her along the way? So I saw her, she was 10 days to two weeks post-op, and we needed to decide what to do with her. And I think this was 2002 or early 2003. At that time, it's fair to say the standard therapy was fractionated radiotherapy. At that time, we were participating in a phase two trial of an intensive dose regimen of temozolomide, an agent that we knew had activity in recurrent anaplastic oligos as upfront treatment. And so this lady, who was a nurse and actually went back to work as a nurse during her treatment after her surgery and who just retired a couple of years ago, she enrolled in the phase two clinical trial and was treated with eight four-week cycles of temozolomide on an alternating weekly schedule. 
tolerated it quite well, worked throughout, and because her tumor never came back, we never gave her radiation. And remarkably now, it's six-plus years since then, and she's neurologically normal, having experienced none of the potentially deleterious effects of radiation therapy to the frontal lobes and is enjoying life. So, What were her molecular cytogenetics? Well, she did not have the favorable deletion pattern, which I think tells us that these chromosomal patterns tell us a lot, but there are obviously other important prognostic biological factors that we don't yet understand. It's particularly surprising because of her age. We know that age is a powerful negative prognostic factor in high-grade gliomas so that to get somebody who was 67 hold off on radiation and have it now be more than six years later is an exceptional outcome. It sounds like an incredible human experience for both her and you. What's her life situation, and how does she feel about what happened? Yeah. She is an extraordinary and very intelligent person. She was widowed for a long time, has a son who has children, so she has grandchildren, but who lives a bit of a distance away from her. And she's a very independent life, very vibrant lady who reads and loves to go to movies. And I think she was someone who took things as they came and really hasn't looked back. What kind of nursing did she do? Med surge nursing, inpatient hospital floor nursing. I can't even imagine what it must be like to be her, having gone through this experience. You mentioned the potential deleterious effects of radiation therapy that she's been able to avoid so far. What's the spectrum of what you see, and when do you see it? Yeah, well, I think radiation has clearly gotten better in the last couple of decades. And in the old days, before the widespread availability of CT and MRI, and even more recently with these very technologically extraordinary computer-driven, multi-leaf collimator radiation machines. But certainly in the old days, long-term survivors of broad-field radiation commonly had neurologic deficits ranging from mild cognitive impairment to profound dementia. In the current era, I think it's become clear that at least for patients with high-grade gliomas, and maybe for patients with low-grade gliomas too, at least in the short run, Radiation, any bad effects of radiation are still better than any effects of untreated or undertreated tumor. So it's still worse to have tumor out of control in your head than to have radiation. And the ability to make radiation fields smaller and our recognition that a smaller daily fractions of radiation make things safer have definitely improved the benefit-risk ratio. But I think we still definitely see cognitive impairment in a meaningful percentage of long-term survivors of patients who've had broad-field radiation therapy. And radiation to the frontal lobes and temporal lobes is probably particularly noxious from that perspective. Is there anything, anything specific about the cognitive defects that are seen? The typical description or depiction is relatively preserved long-term memory, but impaired concentration and attention impaired short-term memory, and sometimes impaired judgment as well. What other type of neurologic dysfunctions do we see after? Obviously, it depends on the type of radiation, the course, and et cetera. But just in general, I mean, do you see sensory motor changes? You can, although as a delayed effect, 
as a remote delayed effect of standard radiation, that's relatively uncommon. The exception would be when we see radiation necrosis, which we see in a small percentage, probably 5% or less, of patients treated with standard radiation doses of about 6,000 centigrade. Patients with radiation necrosis develop contrast-enhancing masses with surrounding vasogenic edema that look for all the world like tumor on MR scan and in terms of patient symptoms act like tumor. So if you have radiation necrosis in your motor area, you can certainly get hemiparesis. If you have it in your language area, you can certainly become aphasic. And how do you make the diagnosis? Well, the differential diagnosis, of course, is recurrent tumor or a mixture of radiation necrosis and recurrent tumor. And there's no perfect way of making the diagnosis. PET scans are occasionally helpful, particularly if they're hypermetabolic. It's likely that you're dealing with recurrent tumor, but they're not uniformly reliable. MR spectroscopy and MR perfusion similarly are sometimes suggestive Ultimately, if you absolutely need to know, biopsy or surgical debulking gives you an answer, although biopsy, you have faced the issue of sampling error as well. And also, often we're dealing with a mixture of radiation necrosis and residual or recurrent tumor. Anything that increases the risk for radiation necrosis in terms of patient host effects or any other clinical effects, treatments, etc.? Yeah, well, we know that total dose, larger volumes, certainly increase the risk. Large radiation fractions, which aren't typically utilized. In terms of intrinsic host predispositions, people have suggested that things like a propensity towards ischemic small vessel disease with hypertension or diabetes may predispose to radiation toxicity, both in terms of radiation necrosis and the more diffuse radiation leukoencephalopathy. That hasn't been convincingly proven yet, however. And there likely are other host factors that we don't fully understand. You know, for example, are patients with, you know, carriers of AT perhaps more sensitive to radiation? We just don't know yet. It sounds theoretically like something that could be a little problematic. What about the issue of, quote, pseudoprogression? Well, that is an issue, and it's not completely a new issue because this was a well-described phenomenon in the radiation alone era or even radiation plus BCNU era. But it does seem that we're seeing more and more of it in the temozolomide era, and that may be because we're getting synergistic cell kill between radiation and temozolomide. But it certainly is common enough that the first post-radiation MRI looks worse that I warn patients about it beforehand when we're starting radiation in Temidar. I tell them, we're going to get an MRI about four weeks after you finish radiation. It often looks worse, and often when it looks worse, it's not because the tumor is growing, it's because the treatment's been effective. So we're not going to necessarily put a great deal of weight on what that MRI looks like. Rather, it will serve as a baseline. It again seems like something that Pretty important to know about. I mean, do most neuroradiologists and community practice know about this? I think most neuroradiologists are familiar with this. I think 
in community practices, I'm not sure that all radiologists reading MRIs are neuroradiologists, and they may not know about it. I think it's reasonably safe to say that there are plenty of neurologists, neurosurgeons, um, and medical oncologists in the community who aren't really familiar with this phenomenon. be interesting to find out. We do patterns of care national surveys all the time. Maybe we should put in a couple questions about that because, I mean, what you're saying theoretically is that if you're not aware of it, you may diagnose the patient as having progression, put them on a new therapy when, in fact, they're responding. Well, that's correct. Or the other thing I see not uncommonly in patients from the community is that the first post-radiation MRI looks worse, and the neurosurgeon and radiation oncologists want to give a radiation boost, you know, perhaps with a fancy new radiation machine or gamma knife machine, to the area that looks worst. And that may be just the wrong thing when what we're seeing is radiation effect. Any other you know, areas of education need or myths or misperceptions that you think may be out there and docs are trying to keep up with 50 different types of tumors, but issues and specifically in blioblastoma that you think are important to get out there? I guess the only myth I think it's important to dispel is that glioblastomas are a hopeless disease because we have a lot of patients now who are long-term survivors who are still in the workforce enjoying time with their families and grandchildren. The future of patient care with the early promise that we've seen from anti-angiogenic agents looks very bright. We're now able to target a number of other pathways. So I think we're poised to see a real upturn or explosion leading to improvement in overall survival in this disease. So I guess when you are out jogging or doing whatever you do to relax, you think about this lady who just got her eight cycles of temozolomide and is out there walking around with a normal CAT scan, feeling good. Maybe someday that'll happen for glioblastoma? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm a neurologist by training, so I like to say that I can always go back and treat Parkinson's disease and headache when brain tumors are cured.